0: Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from a sermon once preached by Charles Spurgeon. This message is from a collection of Spurgeon messages created by Perry Boardman, known as Spurgeon's Gems. Today's message is from volume one of that series, number 50. It's entitled The Holy Ghost, the Great Teacher. John 16, Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak, and He will show you things to come. This generation has gradually, almost imperceptibly, become to a great extent a godless generation. One of the diseases of the present generation of mankind is their secret but deep seated godlessness, by which they have so far departed from the knowledge of God. Science has discovered to us second causes, and hence many have too much forgotten the first great cause, the author of all. They have been able so far to pry into secrets, that the great axiom of the existence of a God has been too much neglected. Even among professing Christians, while there is a great amount of religion, there is too little godliness. There is much external formalism, but too little inward acknowledgement of God, too little living on God, living with God, relying upon God. Hence arises the sad fact that when you enter many of your places of worship, You will certainly hear the name of God mentioned, but except in the benediction, you would scarcely know there was a trinity. In many places dedicated to Jehovah, the name of Jesus is too often kept in the background. The Holy Spirit is almost entirely neglected, and very little is said concerning his sacred influence. Even religious men have become, to a large degree, godless in this age. We, sadly, require more preaching regarding God, more preaching of those things which look not so much at the creature to be saved as at God, the Great One, to be extolled. My firm conviction is that in proportion as we have more regard for the sacred Godhead, the wondrous Trinity in unity, shall we see a greater display of God's power and a more glorious manifestation of His might in our churches. May God send us a Christ-exalting, Spirit-loving ministry, men who shall proclaim God the Holy Ghost in all His offices, and shall extol God the Savior as the author and finisher of our faith, not neglecting that great God the Father of all His people, who before all worlds elected us in Christ His Son justified us through His righteousness, and will inevitably preserve us and gather us together in one in the consummation of all things at the last great day. Our text has regard to God the Holy Spirit. Of Him we shall speak, and Him only, if His sweet influence shall rest upon us. The disciples had been instructed by Christ concerning certain elementary doctrines, But Jesus did not teach his disciples more than what we would call the ABC of religion. He gives his reasons for this in the twelfth verse. He says, I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. His disciples were not possessors of the Spirit. They had the Spirit as far as the work of conversion was concerned, but not as to the matters of bright illumination profound instruction, prophecy, and inspiration. He says, I am now about to depart, and when I go from you, I will send the Comforter unto you. You cannot bear these things now, howbeit when he, the Spirit of Truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. The same promise that he made to his apostles stands good to all his children, and in reviewing it, We shall take it as our portion and heritage, and shall not consider ourselves intruders upon the manner of the apostles, or upon their exclusive rights and prerogatives. For we conceive that Jesus says even to us, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. Dwelling exclusively upon our text, we have five things to say. First of all, here is an attainment mentioned. A knowledge of all truth. Secondly, here is a difficulty suggested, which is that we need guidance into all truth. Thirdly, here is a person provided. When he, the Spirit, shall come, he shall guide you into all truth. Fourthly, here is a manner hinted at. He shall guide you into all truth. Fifthly, here is a sign given as to the working of the Spirit. We may know whether he works by His guiding us into all truth, into all of one thing. Not truths, but truth. So, number one, here is an attainment mentioned, which is a knowledge of all truth. We know that some conceive doctrinal knowledge to be of very little importance and of no practical use. We do not think so. We believe the science of Christ crucified, and a judgment of the teachings of Scripture to be exceedingly valuable. We think it is right that the Christian ministry should not only be arousing, but instructing. Not merely awakening, but enlightening. That it should appeal not only to the passions, but to the understanding. We are far from thinking doctrinal knowledge to be of secondary importance. We believe it to be one of the first things in the Christian life, to know the truth, and then to practice it. We scarcely need this morning to tell you how desirable it is for us to be well taught in things of the kingdom. First of all, nature itself, when it has been sanctified by grace, gives us a strong desire to know all truth. The natural man separates himself and intermeddles with all knowledge. God has put an instinct in him by which he is rendered unsatisfied if he cannot probe a mystery to its bottom. He can never be content until he can unriddle secrets. What we call curiosity is something given us of God, impelling us to search into the knowledge of natural things. That curiosity, sanctified by the Spirit, is also brought to bear in matters of heavenly science and celestial wisdom. Bless the Lord, said David, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. If there is a curiosity within us, it ought to be employed and developed in a search after truth. All that is within me, sanctified by the Spirit, should be developed. and Verily, the Christian feels an intense longing to bury his ignorance and receive wisdom. If he, when in his natural estate, panted for terrestrial knowledge, how much more ardent is the wish to unravel, if possible, the sacred mysteries of God's Word. A true Christian is always intently reading and searching the Scripture that he may be able to certify himself as to its main and cardinal truths. I do not think much of that man who does not wish to understand doctrines. I cannot conceive him to be in a right position when he thinks it does not matter whether he believes a lie or truth, whether he is heretic or orthodox, whether he received the word of God as it is written or as it is deluded and misconstrued by man. God's word will ever be to a Christian a source of great anxiety. A sacred instinct within will lead him to pry into it. He will seek to understand it. Oh, there are some who forget this. Men who purposely abstain from mentioning what are called high doctrines because they think if they should mention high doctrines, they would be dangerous. And so they keep them back. Foolish men! They do not know anything of human nature. For if they did understand a grain's worth of humanity... They would know that the hiding of these things compels men to search them out. From the fact that they do not mention them, they drive men to places where these and these only are preached. They say, if I preach election and predestination and these dark things, people will all go straight away and become antinomians. I am not so sure if they were to be called antinomians It would hurt them much, but but hear me, oh you ministers that conceal these truths, that is the way to make them antinomians, he means people who are against the law, the law of God and think you can just do anything as a Christian, by silencing these doctrines. Curiosity is strong. If you tell them they must not pluck the truth, they'll be sure to do it. But if you give it to them as you find it in God's word, they will not seek to rest it. W-R-E-S-T Enlightened men will have the truth. And if they see election in scripture, they will say, It is there, and I will find it out. If I cannot get it in one place, I'll get it in another. The true Christian has an inward longing and anxiety after it. He is hungry and thirsty after the word of righteousness. And he must and will feed on this bread of heaven, or at all hazards he will leave the husks which unsound divines would offer him. Not only is this attainment to be desired because nature teaches us so, but a knowledge of all truth is very essential for our comfort. I believe that many persons have been distressed half their lives from the fact that they did not have clear views of truth. Many poor souls, for instance, under conviction, abide three or four times as long in sorrow of mind as they would require to do if they had someone to instruct them in the great matter of justification. So there are believers who are often troubling themselves about falling away, but if they knew in their soul the great consolation that we are kept by the grace of God through faith unto salvation, they would be no more troubled about it. So have I found some distressed about the unpardonable sin. But God instructs us in that doctrine and shows us that no conscience that is really awakened ever can commit that sin, but that when it is committed, God gives us up to a seared conscience so that we never fear or tremble afterwards. All that distress would be alleviated. Depend on this. The more you know of God's truth, all things else being equal, the more comfortable you will be as a Christian. Nothing can give a greater light on your path than a clear understanding of divine things. It is a mingle-mangled gospel too commonly preached which causes the downcast faces of Christians. Give me the congregation whose faces are bright with joy. Let their eyes glisten at the sound of the gospel. Then will I believe that it is God's own words they are receiving. Instead thereof you will often see melancholy congregations whose visages are not much different from the bitter countenance of poor creatures swallowing medicine, because the word spoken terrifies them by its legality instead of comforting them by its grace. We love a cheerful gospel, and we think all the truth will tend to comfort the Christian. Comfort again, says another, always comfort. Ah, but there is another reason why we prize truth, because we believe that a true knowledge of all the truth will keep us very much out of danger. No doctrine is so calculated to preserve a man from sin as the doctrine of the grace of God. Those who have called it a licentious doctrine did not know anything at all about it. Poor ignorant things, they they little knew that their own vile stuff was the most licentious doctrine under heaven. If they knew the grace of God in truth, they would soon see that there was no preservative from lying like a knowledge that we are elect of God from the foundation of the world. There is nothing like a belief in my eternal perseverance and the immutability of my father's affection, which can keep me near to him from a motive of simple gratitude. Nothing makes a man so virtuous as belief of truth. A lying doctrine will soon beget a lying practice. A man cannot have an erroneous belief without by and by having an erroneous life. I believe the one thing naturally begets the other. Keep NEAR GOD'S TRUTH, KEEP NEAR HIS WORD, KEEP THE HEAD RIGHT, AND ESPECIALLY KEEP YOUR HEART RIGHT WITH REGARD TO TRUTH, AND YOUR FEET WILL NOT GO FAR ASTRAY. AGAIN, I ALSO HOLD THAT THIS ATTAINMENT TO THE KNOWLEDGE OF ALL TRUTH IS VERY DESIRABLE FOR THE USEFULNESS WHICH IT WILL GIVE US IN THE WORLD AT LARGE. WE SHOULD NOT BE SELFISH. We should always consider whether a thing will be beneficial to others. A knowledge of all truth will make us very serviceable in this world. We shall be skillful physicians who know how to take the poor, distressed soul aside, to put the finger on his eye and take the scale off from him, that heaven's light may comfort him. There will be no character, however perplexing may be its peculiar phase, but we shall be able to speak to it and comfort it. He who holds the truth is usually the most useful man. As a good Presbyterian brother said to me the other day, I know God has blessed you exceedingly in gathering in souls, but it is an extraordinary fact that nearly all the men I know, with scarcely an exception who have been made useful in gathering in souls have held the great doctrines of the grace of god well almost every man whom god has blessed to the building up of the church in prosperity and around whom the people have rallied has been a man who has held firmly to free grace from first to last through the finished salvation of christ do you think you need have errors in your doctrine to make you useful, we have some who preach Calvinism all the first part of the sermon and finish up with Arminianism because they think that will make them useful. Uh, useful nonsense, that's all it is. A man, if he cannot be useful with the truth, cannot be useful with an error. There is enough in the pure doctrine of God without introducing heresies to preach to sinners. As far as I know, I never felt hampered or cramped in addressing the ungodly in my life. I can speak with as much fervency and yet not in the same style as those who hold the contrary views of God's truth. Those who hold God's word never need add something untrue in speaking to men. The sturdy truth of God touches every cord in every man's heart. If we can, by God's grace... Put our hand inside a man's heart. We need nothing but that whole truth to move him thoroughly and to stir him up. There's nothing like the real truth and the whole truth to make a man useful. Now again, here is a difficulty suggested, and that is that we require a guide to conduct us into all truth. The difficulty is that truth is not so easy to discover. There is no man born in this world by nature who has the truth in his heart. There is no creature that ever was fashioned since the fall, who has a knowledge of truth innate and natural. It has been disputed by many philosophers whether there are such things as innate ideas at all, but it is of no use disputing as to whether there are any innate ideas of truth. There are none such. There are ideas of everything that is wrong and evil, but in us, that is our flesh, there dwells no good thing. We are born in sin and shaped in iniquity. In sin did our mother conceive us. There is nothing good in us and no tendency to righteousness. Then, since we are not born with the truth, we have the task of searching for it. If we're to be blessed by being eminently useful as Christian men, we must be well-instructed in matters of revelation. But here's the difficulty, that we cannot follow without a guide the winding paths of truth. Why this? Well, first, because of the very great intricacy of truth itself. Truth itself is no easy thing to discover. Those who fancy they know everything and constantly dogmatize with the spirit of, we are the men and wisdom will die with us. Of course, they see no difficulties, whatever in the system they hold. But I believe the most earnest student of Scripture will find things in the Bible which puzzle him. However, earnestly he reads it, he will see some mysteries too deep for him to understand. He'll cry out, Truth! I I cannot find you. I, I know not where you are. You are beyond me. I cannot fully view you. Truth is a path so narrow that two can scarcely walk together in it. We usually tread the narrow way in a single file. Two men can seldom walk arm in arm in the truth. We believe the same truth in the main, but we cannot walk together in the path. It is too narrow. The way of truth is very difficult. If you step an inch aside on the right, you're in dangerous error. If you swerve a little to the left, you're equally in the mire. On the one hand, there is a huge precipice. On the other, a deep morass. And unless you keep to the true line, to the breadth of a hair, you will go astray. Truth is a narrow path indeed. It is a path the eagle's eye has not seen and a depth the diver has not visited. It is like the veins of metal in a mine. It is often of excessive thinness, and moreover, it it runs not in one continued layer. Lose it once, and you may dig for miles and not discover it again. The eye must perpetually watch the direction of the load. Grains of truth are like the grains of gold in the rivers of Australia. They must be shaken by the hand of patience and washed in the stream of honesty, or the fine gold will be mingled with sand. Truth is often mingled with error, and it is hard to distinguish it. But we bless God, he has said, when the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth. Another reason why we need a guide is the invidiousness of error. It easily steals upon us. And if I may so describe our position, we are often like we were on Thursday night in that tremendous fog. Most of us were feeling for ourselves and wondering where on earth we were. We could scarcely see an inch before us. We came to a place where there were three turnings, and we thought we knew the old spot. There was the lamp post, and now we must take a sharp turn to the left, but not so. We ought to have gone a little to the right. We have been so often to the same place that we think we know every flagstone. There's our friend's shop over the way. It's dark, but we think we must be quite right, And, and all the while we are quite wrong and find ourselves half a mile out of the way. So it is with matters of truth. We think, surely this is the right path, and the voice of the evil one whispers, this is the way, walk in it. And you do so, and you find, to your great dismay, that instead of the path of truth... You've been walking in the paths of unrighteousness and erroneous doctrines. The way of life is a labyrinth. The grassiest paths and the most bewitching are the farthest away from right. The most enticing are those which are garnished with rested truths. Rested, W-R-E. I believe there is not a counterfeit coin in the world so much like a genuine one, as some errors are like the truth. One is base metal, the other is true gold. Still, in externals, they differ very little. We also need a guide because we are so prone to go astray. Why, if the path of heaven were as straight as Bunyan pictures it with no turning to the right hand or left, and no doubt it is, we are so prone to go astray that we should we should go to the right hand to the mountains of destruction or, or to the left in the dark wood of desolation. David says... Have gone astray like a lost sheep. That means very often. For if a sheep is put into a field twenty times, if it does not get out twenty-one times, it will be because it cannot, because the place is hurtled up and it cannot find a hole in the hedge. If grace did not guide a man, he would go astray, though there were handposts all the way to heaven. Let it be written, Miklat, Miklat, the way to refuge. He would turn aside, and the avenger of blood would overtake him. If some guide did not, like the angels in Sodom, put his hand on his shoulders and, and cry, Escape, escape for thy life, look not behind thee, stay not in all the plain. These, then, are the reasons why we need a guide. Next time, we'll take the third place, A Person Provided. Again, thank you so much for being with us today. Do look around the site. We have over 3,000 audios, 3,500, I believe, featuring some of the church's great preachers, persecution stories from North Korea in English and Korean, Bible studies on a number of subjects, and a blog. If you want more fellowship, consider buying one of my books at amazon.com or contact me at bob.j.falkner.72 at gmail.com. You might want to join us online at a Zoom meeting, too. Just contact me. Well, thank you so much. And uh, this is the Hackberry House of Chosun. This audio is being released on the 4th of April, 2023. Lord willing, we're going to talk again real soon. Bye-bye.